Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, I love social situations, but I treat them very differently. It's not, it's not relaxing to go to large group events for me. Yeah. It's a a bit of an emotional drain and a psychological drain and usually a physical drain as well because it's usually a a dance event and workshops all weekend and dancing till 2 a.m. and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It has its place. I love it. It's good for me. But but I definitely have to refuel after events like this, where somehow when I hang out with, uh, do a one-on-one, like when we hang out, have a lunch on the weekend, something like that, we have the most intense discussions, but I come away absolutely kind of recharged and full of ideas and tons of energy. It's interesting to see that dynamic. I wonder if that's part of the sort of outgoing introvert mindset yeah i wonder about that like i'd always i'd be interested to hear from people who really genuinely believe they love big groups and socializing as like a preferred form and they feel it's totally genuine and totally healthy like i'm not saying these people don't exist i'm not trying to imply that i'm like i'm just really keen to hear from them because I am definitely strongly extroverted, but I still hate groups unless hmm, unless the group actually ends up taking the form of lots of one-to-one intense discussions. Like, for example, when we used to run Brojo, you know, like uh, group stuff, that didn't dream me. But everybody's no, taking turns to talk, and everybody's talking real shit. I think it's uh, it's the same like having Mitch and Kelly here for two days. We're like talking almost nonstop for hours and hours. Didn't drain me though, because we're talking about real shit, and I didn't have to think about. I feel anything. like I feel like the distinction for me is um, when I'm I can give all kinds of intellectual energy. I can stand in front of a crowd and give a TED talk, and I'll feel recharged. Because there's no emotional drain. Mm-hmm. The moment I'm in a situation where people need attention, when they need someone to listen to their problems and not fix them, oh, it's exhausting. Mm. And as a guy, you know, with a girlfriend who, you know, women often are, you know, famous for wanting their man to listen and not fix things, I can understand why guys find that such a, such a difficulty. It's, it's, it's hugely draining. And parenting. God. Yeah, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? No, I have a a child that just needs all your emotion, and you can't talk any rational sense to them. Drain. It's beautiful, but it's 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 definitely you need time to refill that cup. I've been thinking about that a little bit lately, like uh, accepting your partner, right? So, and you could apply this to friends, whatever. If you're gonna go on, and I don't. Don't hope that they'll become something that they're not. And one of the things that I am is a problem solver. And like, like, <laughs> I would call it complaining. If someone talks about a problem that they could do something about, but they refuse to do anything about it, I call that complaining. Not everyone would call that complaining. Some people just call it sharing. But for me, I'm listening to that going, why are we talking about this? You know, and, 
on a like a rational or academic sense i get it some people just like to talk about stuff and share and they don't want to do anything about it but i get it like i get that lions have to eat raw meat like i get that it's true but i don't do that <laughs> you know what i mean like that's not my thing and i i don't get it from an empathetic level like i wouldn't ever go oh yeah i feel like doing that too like for me if i hear myself talking about a problem i could solve i feel embarrassed like get your shit together and you know and so yeah. one of the things i've been you know i talked about with lucy a bit it's like she has to accept like if she brings problems to me i am desperately urged to try and help her so not solve them myself necessarily i've moved past that but i'm going to push her to solve them and rather than going with the cosmo magazine like you should listen more she has to understand like i'm not that person in her life i'm not that guy that would be too like i'd have to like pretend to be something i'm not to be that guy if she, she needs to go talk to her girlfriends if it's that situation you know or talk to her family or there's other people she can talk to I'm just not that role in her life. The guy listens to complaints and just goes, mm, yes, poor you. Like, I can't do it. I just yeah. can't do it. I've never, I've never figured that out either. I suspect that in, in the situation where you are your female partner's only support, that there's probably a balance that can be achieved where you'll give her time, where you'll just listen, and you'll hold it in. You'll hold in your responses. You'll hold in your opinions. You'll hold in, but you, she'll be very clear after she's had a little bit of time to stew over it and release, there is going to be a discussion about how it can be, you know, confronted and resolved. Because, um, man, I think I would explode if I didn't have the opportunity to actually fix it. I found something really interesting in the forums the other day. I, I've been really actively engaged in a number of tech forums lately, and I've started a kind of side business doing consulting for large product companies where the executive teams bring me in to consult on their products. It's been really interesting. It's a different, it's a different event. It's a lot like the management consulting I used to do, except now I'm a third party roaming the world wherever I want to be. And they just bring me into zoom calls and talk to their team about their features and problem solving. And they're beautiful because they want to solve problems. That's why they're there. You know, it's great. I can I can identify and solve everything. Those are incredibly fulfilling discussions. But then I, I've also been spending a lot of time in the forums, in the user forums of those same companies, so I understand what the users are struggling with. And that's a whole different world. A lot of the users there are just there to complain. Yeah. And I had a situation the other day where... A user came in and asked, how do I fix this thing? This thing doesn't work. What do I do? And I gave him a solution. Here you go. There was no thank you, no sign of appreciation, more complaints. Oh, I, like I gave him the solution he needed, but he wanted to complain more about how the product didn't work exactly the way he wanted. And I kind of gave him the what for. And then a few other forum moderators kind of came in and go, why do you, you know, you don't even work for the, the parent company. Why are you, why are you, you know, reacting? They considered it defensive. Mm -hmm. It wasn't defensive at all. And I explained, it's like, look, he came and he asked a question and gave him an answer. There was no thank you. There was no appreciation. There were simply more complaints. If I, if he worked for a company that I was management consulting at, 
he would have been escorted out of the building on the spot. Like, there was no place for that. It simply didn't make any sense. If you come into the forums asking a question and someone answers it and invests time in your problem, it, it's so important to give some degree of respect and appreciation back. Otherwise, you're just a drain on society. And I, I didn't realize my viewpoint on that had become quite black and white, quite harsh. I had zero tolerance for that. And I reacted off the cuff. It was interesting as I was writing, I was like, I could see I'm a little bit steamed, but this is a very healthy kind of anger and he needs to see this. And it was a lot of fun writing. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's, uh, there's something I sort of debate with a bit around sort of compassion and empathy. All the big philosophies will, in one way or another, say that you have to put this huge effort into trying to understand them from their point of view and, you know, see the human frailty and stuff. And when somebody does something that's sort of this sort of contradictory to the culture of the thing, you have to try and understand them and, and so on. And I get that. Like, if we did that more with criminal offenders, there would be less crime. It's as simple as that. But I've also, I've worked directly with criminal offenders and there's a time and a place far more frequently than people would admit where you've got to be hard on them to get the best results for everybody involved, including themselves. And I think we're, we're getting into an age where it's almost, I mean, you can talk, talk about how people get offended, the whole outrage culture and everything like that. We've become too tolerant of, of people being disrespectful, of people, uh, well, especially I think I'd use the term disrespectful where they know what the game is and they break the rules and then expect to be like applauded for doing so. You know what I mean? Like, like your example is a good one. Someone comes to a forum. This is a Q and A situation. Couldn't be more clear. This isn't like, this isn't AA. This isn't your therapist. This is like tech guys. What do you think tech guys are going to do? Like talk to you about your feelings? This is tech guys, dude. This place is like spectrum as fuck. Like you're going to get black and white answers, dude. He comes in and then like just wants to bitch. No, I don't think that should be accommodated. I don't think it's in his best interest to accommodate that. Even to not even like reflect a little bit. Yeah. Like sometimes if you're, if you're, if you're petting a dog that's dangerous, you need to get bit kind of thing. You can't just be like, Oh, let's talk about the dog. How we, was he fluffy? Did you like that? Like there's, there's places for that. Lots of them. Uh, therapy, for example, is nothing but that. But you're not a therapist. You don't owe him anything. Um, and, and even down to intimate relationships, if you haven't signed up for being something you're not, then you don't owe them anything. They shouldn't expect anything. Uh, you know, Lucy's pretty good for this. Like, I'm going to tell her, like, this is the guy you married, remember? And she's like, yeah, fair enough. You know, like... She's not expecting me to like add more addendums to the contracts that weren't there when I signed, you know. Um, and this is what I love about coaching is the guys show up going like, this guy's going to be hard on me. And I was like, oh, I don't have to pretend, you know. And the thing is, I'm actually not that hard all the time. You know, there's times for like compassion and reflecting their strengths and that, but complaints don't go very far in, in coaching. They get destroyed, annihilated, and the person will thank me for it because that's what they want and what they need. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think coddling people is 
gone too far. It's overcorrected. It is. It is. And and the thing is, particularly in online forums, I think people often use it as a place to emotionally vent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I look at these tech forums, and one of the situations is that the the team, the business development team, which is 800 strong, is super busy, super busy turning out awesome features and good products, and they're not spending a lot of time in the user forums. So the user forums end up being a bit of a Lord of the Flies situation, all right? People start complaining. Someone else picks it up. Pretty much now you're developing an anti-company sentiment in their own forums. And just like any relationship, it starts to erode and you see a lot of corrosive thinking and behavior and talk. And new users come in and are like, what the hell is going on here? This is crazy. This is mayhem. Who's, who's running this show? No one is, you know? It's a very Lord of the Flies. It's, a, it's actually a great analogy. Um, and and I remember when as I was writing, I was thinking, well, he's probably just really had a bad day. Maybe I should be a little more gentle. But I decided that that absolutely wasn't what was needed here for him. He needed a good kind of kind of smack upside the face. And what's interesting is I found that since I've started my uh, participation in the forums, I've I've had a lot of fun seeing what impact I can have on the culture there. So one of the things is rather than moaning about problems, I fix them. Here's a solution. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Talk to this guy. He's an expert in DNS issues, whatever the heck it is, right? I give them solutions. And the moment people have a direction to to vent their anger and give their attention, you know, an actual solution they can work towards, a lot of them will take it appreciatively. It's the ones that don't. You're like, you're not here to actually fix anything. You're here because you're frustrated and you just want to be an ass. And this isn't the place for that, so just go away, you know? If there was a block button in the forum, I'd be using it, mm-hmm. you know? And I've said that out loud to people, you know? Um, but I think this is something that we all kind of have to take some responsibility for because I live so much of my life online now. I don't want those forums to be like ratty, you know, mongrel-infested neighborhoods that I don't want to go into. It should be an awesome place you know, where people are actually helping each other just like the community outside my door. I want to see people taking some responsibility for their issues and help and taking some responsibility to be a good citizen. If they see somebody else having a problem that they can fix easily or point them in the right direction, freaking do it. Mm-hmm. It takes two seconds of your time. It makes a better a better world for everybody. So I found that actually to be a really good investment investment of my time. And what was really interesting to me was it's paid back quickly. Like we've talked about this in coaching where the more you give, the more you serve, the more you provide help to people, it'll it'll come back. It'll come back in the form of referrals. It'll come back in the form of new experience and knowledge. It'll come back in new opportunities. It'll come back in coaching with that person someday later when they have a, a good job. It, it'll come back. And here, it's quite interesting because I've gotten a number of interesting corporate contracts out of it, including the companies that I was sort of silently helping. Right. And very unexpected. But it's really kind of beautiful to see that there is the kind of uh, tangible karma 
to investing in your in your investing positively in your social world. And I'm having a lot of fun seeing where that goes. I actually put a uh, I put on my website. I put a have you heard of buy me a coffee? Yeah, I, th- I think I have. Yeah, it's like some yeah, donation so type thing, right? It's like a tip jar. Yeah, it's like hey, if you liked this blog article, buy me a coffee. So I was answering some questions in the forum, and then what I would do is I'd refer them to articles, blog posts, things that I do, and I renamed it uh, "Buy Me a Beer," and I put put you know all kinds of great information and content there. And anytime someone asks me a question, I'm like, "Here's the article you need. Here's the solution you need. Here's a video. Here's the clonable," because I keep answering the same questions mm-hmm. very frequently. People can't seem to work out how to use the search feature. But that's a whole different thing. Um, it was interesting. The first day I put it up, I got 10 beers. So it's about 100 US just instantly dropped in by one guy. Oh, yeah. And I was like, that's very interesting. Like, I didn't ask for that. You know, but just being out there, pulling him, pulling his butt out of the fire right when it, it mattered most didn't mean anything to me. It mattered a whole lot to him. Yeah. And I think I think we run into that all day long, but we we rarely notice it when it happens. We're too busy, too in our own head, too you know, almost selfish in a way, not out of any malicious intent. Just we're not really aware that everyone's struggling in some way, sometime. Well, I think uh, yeah, there's a there's a number of things with that approach, like one is like it's easier to measure online than in person a little bit. But you can change the culture with role modeling. So I think an even more effective approach than, say, uh, I don't know, kind of attacking the guy who complains is just be the guy who doesn't and be prominent. Yeah, that's real Marcus Aurelius stuff. You know, be unlike the man who caused the injury. That's the best kind of revenge. And I've seen this. I've seen see myself get involved even in something as small as like a comment section or a thread that's really getting out of hand if you just come in and swing in the positive direction when everyone else is spiraling negatively it doesn't take many people to do that to turn it around uh but it's a bit of an art like it has to be it can't be a counter-attack because then now that's just polarizing two sides there's always the kind of like there'll be the say the left and the right arguing with each other the black and the white it's the gray that comes in and rescues it says so i can see both sides of the story but clearly the most helpful approach we could all take is this and it kind of calls everyone out like to a higher level like you can do better than this like really you're adults and this is how you talk to each other and you actually you kind of go meta on the discussion and the style and the culture rather than the issue being discussed um it can be the turning point quite often for a culture but i think it, yeah even more so is just while everyone else is bitching you come in and solve and you keep doing that so much that other people are like oh i might as well give that a nudge myself um because i think while you have sort of we'll call them negative influences their power is quite brittle i think deep down people don't really want to be like that or a few people do, but the followers are only doing so because of those sort of following instincts that humans have. You know, that kind of they get pulled into it and they get outraged and triggered and so on. But when sort of when a hero comes along, kind of thing, when someone comes along who's just better than that, 
morally. It shames them into an adjustment of behavior. I think it's very easy to convert the followers of a negative, uh, much more so than it is to subvert the followers of a positive. Yeah. I think for the, for most sane people, uh, absolutes don't exist. Yeah. You know, there isn't absolute black, there isn't absolute white. So if you're leaning too heavily towards one of those, you know, schools of thought, it's because you probably retreated there out of defense, feeling attacked. So I'm going to, I'm going to become more Christian or more atheist or more whatever, anti-vax. Why? Because someone's challenging me. And so I have to defend and prove myself and you end up going deeper down the rabbit hole, whatever, whatever that rabbit hole happens to be. There are millions of them. And it's interesting because when, when you come in, in, in the middle, you give them an escape. You give them a way to back away from their untenable extremist position without conceding defeat or, you know, I was wrong. You know, it's more like, no, actually, okay, he's he's being more reasonable. That's legit and fair. I think I'll walk through that door and see what happens. I think you've probably encountered as, as often as I have <laughs> situations like a uh, when you walk into the middle of a relationship dispute. As a coach, I've walked into disputes between business partners. I've walked into disputes between businesses and their clients, mediations, right, before a big legal affair. Um, obviously, marital relationships, even friendships on occasion, right, where you you walk in as the coach without taking sides, but you've got two people that have very distinctively defensive viewpoints. I found it very interesting that quite often I'll be brought in by one person. Occasionally I'm lucky and I'm brought in by a third party who's not involved. And so I'm, you know, there's no yeah. question of my bias. But what's interesting is I'm usually brought in by one of the parties. And the first question that the other person has is, is, is he biased? Is he going to just support the other person's, you know, stance and beliefs and so on? Well, what ends up happening is most often I end up challenging the person who brought me in more because there are a lot of things they don't see. And because I know I can call them out more directly and help them see them. And it becomes a really interesting dynamic when you, yeah, I'm just, I'm sort of reflecting on the whole arbitration of, you know, divisions in, in social groups all the time. I see situations. Situations where there's a, there's a there's a technique, there's sort of an art form to coming in and diffusing the situation in a way that everyone feels safer and respected and happier, and um, and able to leave their extreme positions and come back to a middle ground, come back to the table, sit down, talk through the actual differences, instead of just being completely emotionally polarized. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's. Maybe it's all about resolving the emotional polarization first so that actual facts can be discussed. Well, that's so why I like, yeah. I feel like... I feel like we've circled back to the first discussion, which was about, you know, letting your partner release her emotions before you can actually have a rational discussion. Well, I, I think it, it still centers around role modeling. Like I saw a video with Brad Blanton, uh, author of Radical Honesty, and his actual day job is relationship therapist. And I should drop my thing. 
And uh, he was saying that almost every time they both come in, one says their piece and the other says their piece, and then they look to him to go, like, who's right? And every time he's like, you're both full of shit. And he says that he's never had an exception to that, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's radical honesty for you. But that's always the case. I've never seen two extreme sides and one of them's right. And that can be quite humbling when they get that message in a way that they can hear it. You know, I, I quite often say I watch, because I like watching intellectual debates, I watch the atheist versus religious type debates, the top level people. And it's always a bit disappointing because I know that no one's leaving changed. People who came to watch their religious guy are now more entrenched because now they've got an enemy, they've been attacked. And all those rational arguments and everything didn't do shit. I know that. And the other side as well. You know, there's there's plenty of arguments for, like, there's wisdom in the Bible. And there's plenty of arguments for the Bible's full of shit. And yet neither party leaves having adjusted at all. If anything, the, the concrete sort of nature of it. Like, anybody who comes out like, I'm an atheist now. They always were. That's all. And now they just feel safe to say it, which is still good for them. But the most powerful thing I've seen, say, exactly in that example, is I'll tell people I'm an atheist, and then I say my wife's Catholic. And they all just sort of go, oh. Because no matter what side you're on, that's like, oh, that's new. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're together? And it's like, yeah, why wouldn't we be? And they just have to kind of reset. Like, that. that's possible? And I think what stands out, and you can get the same thing in a relationship coaching session, is people have spent you know, so much time arguing, they've forgotten what their goal is. What are they trying to achieve here? To beat the other people? Is that who you really are? And you see that in relationships, like, are you here to beat your partner? Because if your relationship, you know, if your goal is actually to be in a good relationship, and you remember that, you'll see that, oh, this is not the way to do that. Like this conflict's not the way to do that. And that's what I mean when I say, like, if I say to people, like, my wife's Catholic and I'm atheist, it can be a wake-up call, like, oh, yeah, the goal is I just want to get along with people. I just I just want to not hate people, that's all. That's the real goal. My real anger towards, say, religion is not that people are religious, it's that I hate what they're doing. I hate them, and I hate feeling hate. And if you can just go like, you know, I can set you up with a conversation when you walk away with way less hate towards religious people without them changing a thing, you know. Would you rather have that or would you rather, like, convince a single Christian to convert to atheism? Like, what are you really here for? Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen this progression. It's kind of a, a progression of relationship entropy, right, where you've got a couple – uh, any couple, relationship couple, business couple, you know, citizens and government can be any kind of social relationship, right? Starts off good, faces some problems at some point. And at first, the problems are the goal, right? It's an actual, we've got something we could potentially solve here. What can we do to solve it? But if that isn't actually dealt with, it starts to decay and emotion starts to really enter the picture. And I think there are phases to it. Um, 
I think the first phase is essentially avoidance, where they're just like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. Let's try to pretend the problem's not there. We'll just kind of go along. We don't mm. have a immediate overnight solution. And that's stage one. And they generally don't resolve anything with that because they're just avoiding the problem now. And pretty soon they start to enter stage two, which is more of a form of um, trying to avoid the pain, like actually hiding from each other because they imagine the, the other party is causing them harm. I think this is actually one of the things that explains a lot of the backlash we saw towards vaccination. You know, all the science aside, whatever the science is, you know, I'm not I'm not a scientific expert here. I'm not going to claim to have the answer um, regarding the, the vaccine debate. But I think there was a point where people got scared enough and tired enough and frustrated enough that you began to see the government as an enemy. Why? Because no one had clear answers. And yet they're still confronted with this problem of, well, you're going to have to get the jab and you're going to have to carry around a stupid vaccine pass if you want to go get a dinner or get on an airplane, or stay in a hotel, or go see a concert, or anything, right? And that created a lot of emotional turmoil for people. I see the same thing in, in, in relationships as well. There's a point where they just start avoiding each other completely. And when they see each other, there's just pain. So they're, they're trying to doctor it in as best as they can. And But at that point is when usually we get called in as coaches. They can feel things are slipping out of their grasp. They're spiraling out of control. Things are clearly not getting better. They don't know how to make them better without help. And so they bring in relationship advisors or, or us, right? But then there's a stage three, which is when the resentment kicks in and they start attacking each other. You know, you're now my enemy. So originally there was some issue which could have been resolved most likely in nine times out of ten. They could have done something about it. They could have at least acknowledged it was a problem mutually and agreed on that fact, right? But what usually ends up happening is this decay process until they see each other as the problem. And at that point, that's when, you know, the, the divorce lawyers get called in. We're not even invited to the party anymore. It's too late, right? And in that decay, I see that happen very often. Um, it is, it's almost like... I mean, we see this in all kinds of different areas of human psychology, so it's no surprise to see it in relationships. But I feel like there's an there's an inner pattern here where, you know, you go avoidance and then we'll end up with, you know, your world falling apart because you're not actually dealing with and confronting with whatever it is, your money issues, your health issues, your relationship issues, your career issues, you know. I could, I think, yeah, the vaccine one was a good example of this at a real big level. I remember specifically in New Zealand, you know, you got to the point where you had protesters outside, you know, the government. And what stood out to me is that the Prime Minister didn't go and talk with them. And I was like, ah, you should have talked to them. You should have tried. Not to get to a solution, but to show that you're willing to talk to them. Yeah. That was missing, and all that did was further divide, you know, and, and by that stage it had become us versus them all throughout New Zealand on more than one issue, and it's not on the government to solve that. I mean, I think most governments are kind of unfortunately full of just quite pathetic-minded people, uh, and it's up to the rest of us to sort out shit, and I really think, like, 
there was just like heroes missing. People come along like, look, we're all neighbors and friends. We shouldn't be fighting about this. Like, let's just try and talk about it. Not like, well, science says this, so you're wrong. And, well, fucking, this YouTuber found this other thing, so you're wrong. And that, that just didn't get anywhere because people felt the goal was to convince the other side and to protect myself rather than the goal is I want to like the place I live. Like, this grander goal. Like, I want to enjoy the people I'm around. People lose sight of the kind of grander goal for this shorter term thing. And, and when they lose sight of that, which is easy to lose sight of, you just need to trigger them, provoke them. And they lose sight, like, instantly. They then just engage in essentially self-sabotaging behaviors. You know, and with my experience, nowhere have I seen this more than in criminal justice. Like, the way criminal justice works, the revenge system, you hurt people so we'll hurt you back, is so counterproductive. It only creates more crime. It guarantees that we will not reduce crime to like a microscopic level. And so we're just shooting ourselves in the the foot with this like need for revenge. We create laws that are based on like how much revenge you can take on someone rather than like, how do we like work with this guy so he never does it again? And so he never raises kids that do it. And so we like the bigger goal of we have a crimeless society. You know what I mean? A harmless, harm free society. People will be like, nah, fuck it. I don't care if my kids get mugged by his kids in 10 years. I want him to go to jail, you know, and you can see that in just, like you said, in all scopes, people just start going against the other person. They get all tribal and it's not in their best interest other than instant gratification. I was just watching a documentary about an initiative in the U.S. some years ago, 20, 30 years ago. It's, It's quite old news now where there was an effort to um, sort of rehabilitate criminals by embracing them back into the society. And the way they approached it was that they tried to create places where everyday citizens, business owners, housewives, whatever, would interact with people who had recently come out of, you know, doing doing their time. And essentially help them reintegrate into society simply by just talking to them and getting to know them and sitting down for a coffee and chatting about life and and how are you doing and what's next. There was no direct plan. But what's interesting is it was put, it was, I can't even remember, it was put out by somebody like Ronald Reagan, like like an old school president. And everybody was like, there's no way that's going to work. That's insane. You know, no one's going to want to get involved in that, and it's just going to create... I mean, there are two different types of people with two different worlds and two different mindsets. But the results were amazing. And when we talk about it in the context of what happens psychologically, I think we've hit the nail on the head here, which is that when someone feels suddenly that they are accepted and embraced in society, society is no longer the enemy. And when society becomes an opportunity... For a better life, of course you're going to take care of it. You're going to protect it, just as you would your family and your friends. And that changes everything. And I think that particular approach to um, to resolving social conflict in, in all forms, right, is based on that simple, fundamental mammal brain design of, of course, I want to feel safe around the people around me. Unless they're actively attacking me, I'm going to treat them well, and I'm going to seek to be a part of that society it's only when i feel 
they're coming at me with me with a stick and there's no carrot in sight then I'm gonna I'm gonna retaliate but we keep creating that we keep creating that pattern again and again whether it's through you know some kind of racism or or lack of education or selfishness or greed and all sorts of situations where we end up creating those divisions and um, it's really interesting when I look at business partners there are all sorts of different dynamics going on there right there are interpersonal conflicts sometimes there are weird situations where like a secretary got involved with both of them or you know crazy things like that so now there's a love interest that they're competing over in some level or feeling resentment over uh, of course money is a huge factor huge factor differences of opinion differences of a sense of like who's investing more time effort value right who should benefit more there's so many factors but all of those could be talked through well, once it starts going over, you know, down an emotional slope, it heads for a cliff really fast. And when they don't resolve that, suddenly there are just too many pieces to pick up. It's like, you know, it's shards of pottery of a broken vase. You can try to glue it back together, but it is, it is really hard at that point. Yeah, they kind of sunk cost fallacy where they've invested in the carnage now. I mean, you get that with the justice system, like, who would want to, like, admit that everyone in prison should be let out or whatever, you know? Like, nobody wants to go to them, fix the mess. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's, there's, again, it's just that kind of modeling, like, when someone's heroic and they come up and be the bigger man, it's amazing the impact it has, you know? Like, the the science is very clear. The very best thing you can do for criminal offenders is wrap them in community support there's nothing that's more effective at all than reducing reoffending it's more effective than getting them off drugs and everything like it's a single like i was quite heartened when i was working in corrections that we eventually got to the understanding the science there and we started doing it especially with higher risk and we, and the people were there you go into the community and go like who wants to help a dude out of jail and a bunch of people are like sure i'll do that fuck that sounds kind of thrilling and interesting and i'll go do it and it's as simple as you have a coffee with a dude you're available on the phone maybe he sleeps in your basement these people took these kind of risks uh but not from their point of view from their point of view they're doing good for society so they instantly get a win for themselves because they're like i'm fucking got some meaning in my life i'm giving to another person who no who nobody wants to give to i found heaps of employers who are happy to employ ex-cons you know and would prefer to because that's part of their like value in life that like gives them meaning to like and they sort of like a guy works hard for you when he knows how hard it is to get a job you know what i mean like when he's like nobody will hire me because i've got fuck you tattooed on my forehead one dude's like i'll let you fucking cart a wheelbarrow around if you're a good boy he's like oh, i'm fucking gonna watch me with this wheelbarrow bro like i'm gonna be like nothing you've ever seen and it's just, it just made sense. It should make sense when you hear it, like, intuitively. Of course, if you wrap someone in support who's never had it in their life, their behavior will improve. And like you said, I think you nailed it, which is the thing that was their enemy is now their provider. They're going to protect their provider. It's as simple as that. They're not going to bite the hand that feeds I know a, a, a guy that lives near me here is a landlord. And uh, I was talking to him the other day about one of his tenants that he recently uh, invited into one of his properties. Really interesting situation. The guy's an ex-con, the, the tenant, not the landlord, right. as far as I'm aware. And, uh, and the tenant 
he he basically said, look, uh, I don't have a job right now. Just got out. I'm, you know, on government assistance. I'm illiterate. Can't read the contract that you want me to sign. <laughs> you know, so I really don't have any idea what, you know, what I'm signing here is a lease. Um, but I'll do my best. And Leonard thought about it for a minute. He goes, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, you had some tough times. You know, you don't have a job. You can't read the contract. Normally, that's not a situation any landlord would want to get into. But his response was, yeah, I hear all of that. I appreciate that. The thing that I care about is that you're clearly honest. You told me straight up your situation. You told me straight up, you know, where my risks lie as your landlord. I'm in. If you want the place, it's yours. Guy moved in, lived there for a year and a half, paid his rent on time mm -hmm. every month. <laughs> you know, he was so committed to that situation simply because he was given a chance and he was respected, you know, given his situation, treated like a human, you know. And I, I stepped away from that kind of going, damn, you know, that's that's a great lesson right there. You know, I could have gone wrong. For a lot of people, it would go wrong. But it was a really good testament of how when you give someone a chance and treat them well, they're very likely to do the same back, you know, when the opportunity is there. I think we're pretty deeply wired for that social cohesion. If it weren't, we'd, we'd all live in anarchy everywhere in the world. Well, we can see the anarchy online, and I think it's because it, the dehumanization of online um, communication I mean, even from just basic phone text messaging onwards, like if there's a lack of the things people will do online that they would never do face to face. And not just because they're too afraid, just their kind of social, like empathy and compassion wouldn't allow them to behave that awfully. Because you understand when someone's having a rant online, they're not seeing people, they're seeing a computer screen. They can do whatever they want on a computer screen. I, th I think there's more than that, and I love this discussion. This is this is a great discussion because that online world. I remember you did a piece on this uh, six months ago, a year ago. I, I saw it zip by. I never watched it, but it was something about why people online are can be total dicks, and then in the real life they're a good guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, seemingly. What's the difference here? What, where's that switch flicking? There was a, a study done um, where. I need, to, I need to look it up if you're interested, but I was watching a video on social change that I'm fascinated by. So psychologists are talking about how it actually is possible to institute wide-scale social change simply by changing the behavior of a few individuals. And one of the things they did was there were some, some horrific traffic accidents happening in London. I believe it was London. And they, they couldn't figure out how do we get people to actually watch for pedestrians? How do we get people to not jaywalk how do we get people to respect the traffic lights how do we stop people from getting mowed down in the streets you know and what they did was the weirdest thing but it totally worked was they hired some mimes you know the whole in a box mm -hmm. you know mimes street mimes they were just hanging around anyway they're performers they had nothing to do except you know do their mime stuff and they said we've got a job for you your job, because you're already out here anyway, right? Your job is whenever you see someone bad driving badly, or you see someone jaywalking, or you see someone who's in some way behaving in a way that is, you know, dangerous or threatening to their fellow citizens, your job is to just point at them. Right. That's all they did. They pointed at them and 
point at them as they're crossing the street or point at them as they're, you know, went through that yellow light. They'd call attention to them. It was essentially a form of social shaming because everyone saw them pointing at that guy right there. The amount of traffic incidents nosedived. Mm. Um, the reaction was so quick. Now, I find that really interesting because in online, we don't have that. The most, the biggest consequence you can get socially is you, you can't even really get a thumbs down. You can only get a thumbs up. So it's missing the normal social framework of dynamics that we are programmed to respond in and, and that govern our behavior in an environment. And I think that that's, I think there's some real lessons there. Like Facebook has a thumbs up and doesn't have a thumbs down, you know, and that made sense from a marketing perspective, but it results in really warped social behavior. And I think that's kind of, I think that's actually one of the fundamental problems that we're facing on the internet is people don't know how to behave well because they don't have that basic incentive of there's a consequence of behaving badly. There's actually people to care about. People will actually notice and respond if I am a dick, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, that, that doesn't happen. The most they can do is that individual blocks you, but no one else even knew that happened, right? Yeah. It's not normal. <clears throat> it's not organic, you know? I always wondered what would happen if you like everything was forced away from text into video. So if everyone's comment was a video and so on, whether it would make much of a difference. But I still, I don't know if it would make a huge difference because it's something about the proximity. I mean, partly I think there's a deep, basic, simple avoidance of violence thing that we have. And one of the reasons we behave well in front of other people is because everyone's a slight risk of violence. You know, we've got that deeply in our DNA. And online, there's no risk of violence. Yeah, I think Mike Tyson nowadays, like, you're, you all got too comfortable without getting, about not getting punched in the face, you know? And that's the problem with online is nobody's ever going to punch you in the face. And some part of you realizes that. <clears throat> but Louis C.K. also, I think he nailed it, where he's talking about, like, you send this horrible tweet and you just go, oh, that feels nice. Uh, but you don't get a person in front of you go, oh, crushed, and you don't see their face and everything, and you go, oh, I don't like that. That feels yuck. So you don't get the counterweight of like empathy and, and, and so on that happens when you see it. It's like kids in the playground, I think he was talking about, when they first start being mean to people, and then they make a kid cry, and they're like, oh, I don't like that. I made him cry. That sucks. Because they know what it's like to feel like that, and that's where they start to learn good behavior. It's kind of, oh, that's harmful. I don't like being harmed myself. Empathy, you know? online you can go like fuck you and he's like i don't even see where that landed like that's just awesome just yeah this animalistic like purge of all my resentment about my work and my relationships and the body i see in the mirror i can just go find some political debate and just purge on people and yeah you just you in real life they they would say it differently or also <sighs> I don't know if it's a good thing or not, really. But in real life, people are way more afraid of confrontation. Uh, someone says something stupid, most likely the response you're going to get is silence. Very few people stand up for themselves or call out the dickhead or whatever. But online, that fear is almost gone. I think people actually get like a kind of roller coaster thrill of doing something online that they can't do in person. So stuff that would usually go ignored, which is sometimes the best response, gets responded to. 
And that's what you get is like online, you get these lunatics on either extreme and people are reacting. You wouldn't react if you walk past the guy on the street and he's just shouting at people. He'd be like, fuck that. I don't want to get into it. But online, you're like, what did you say? <laughs> you know, and you go and have a discussion with them. Like, that's going to go well. Of course, that's not going to go well. You know, you get some like deep thicket conspiracy theorist who believes just the most supernatural, craziest things and is very, very angry about it. You're not going to talk to that guy on the street. But online, the guy's got like 10 million followers and he's got his own YouTube channel. You know, it's just, it's nonsense. And. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to manage that. But here's the thing. There's these examples like there's a I think the name of the YouTube channel is Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. I think that's the actual name of the channel. Mm -hmm. And that sounds familiar. I haven't seen it. Or or the channel like every video is Uncomfortable Conversations with a and there's something like a type and, you know, I only saw one of them, and it was the guy, and uh, Matthew Con McConaughey was the, the white dude. And basically, the white guy just gets to ask him questions that are uncomfortable to ask about race. And they just went back and forth, you know, and it was really, like, quite, like, ooh, questions. Like, fuck, we finally get to talk about this thing that, you know, a white guy would just be too scared to ask a black dude, but wants to know, you know, genuine curiosity. And of course, Matthew McConaughey is like the man, so he's just the way he responds and everything's just so like awesome. It, one of those things he just says, "heard," you know, and so he says, "he's heard," like that's it, just acknowledges it. Anyway, the comment section is just so wholesome under that video. But that kind of leadership and role modeling it brings out the best of the people in the comments. And you, usually, YouTube comments is an absolute gutter. Oh, it's the I worst of all the. It's about it's the only place that's worse than Twitter, right? It's just the anonymity of it or whatever. It's just it brings out the worst, the trolling, the bots that are actually there to stir up problems and everything. It's just a horrible place. But in videos like that, there's another series of videos, like if you just Google uh, or YouTube Google um, Restoring Faith in Humanity, there's all these compilations of people sort of caught on CCTV just doing awesome things or just very acts of just great kindness and very thoughtful things. Again, get into the comment section there. Very few trolls, very very little vitriol. Um, or even like some of the ones I saw one, uh, it was Russell Brand, he has a few clips, and it will say like, Russell Brand disagreeing respectfully with X, Y, and Z. Um, and sometimes even the title is misleading. It says they have a heated argument, and you get there and it's not. It's just a respectful conversation of two people who have different points of view trying to understand each other. Again, the comment section very wholesome. Like most of it is like, fuck, it's so good to see people talk like this. And that like you can go see for yourself. That's the most common form of comment is it's so good to see that people can talk like this. And you know that the person sides with one of them, probably. They're not in the middle. But it's brought them in closer to the middle. You know, like they've gone whoever they are, they've gone like, look. My guy, I still agree with him, but the other guy was really reasonable and respectful, and that just it moves me out of that entrenched extremist position. And now I'm starting to see like these are two humans talking about something, not me versus them. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that like leadership, that role modeling that sets the tone and actually makes it very uncomfortable for trolls to get involved. One of my uh, favorite 
channels as a chess channel, Gotham Chess. It's the biggest chess channel. And it's kind of, it's a little bit comedic. It's just the guy reviewing games and he's the master and teaches you stuff. Now his funny thing, he, he does this thing called the pin of shame, which is whenever somebody trolls him in the comments, he pins the comment up the top for everybody to like have a go at in a kind of playful way. So if somebody says like, oh, you're just using clickbait in your titles, he pins it rather than, and he always gives it a little love heart, you know. So his comment section is usually pretty, I wouldn't say wholesome, but it's, it's usually pretty reasonable mm. and loving because he will actually highlight somebody being a dick. And, and he doesn't react defensively to it. He's more like promoting them in this ironic way. He's like, you're the star of the show, spotlight. You know, and everyone's just like, oh, dude, you're so ridiculous, and so on. Um, again, there's just something in there about great, like, the leaders. I love that. It's, it's such a great stoic response, too. I'm trying to remember who it was that said, um, I think it was a president, like Roosevelt or somebody, who uh, somebody really criticized him viciously in the media, and his response was, well, he was clearly unaware of all my other faults because he didn't mention those problems at all. <laughs> yeah, right. I, <laughs> I was like, yeah, bro. That's awesome, you know. That's exactly the right mindset to have. None of us are perfect. This guy's not perfect either. If you try to pretend you're perfect, you're going to get strung up, you know. And he could see that straight away. And I, and I think when you, when you talk about the situation that we had, you know, in New Zealand at the Capitol, where the government did not respond to the anti-vaccination protests right outside the Capitol building. It was that same problem. They were somehow trying to defend their image or say, we're above this, you know, you don't deserve our time and attention. That did not have a positive effect, even for bystanders, hmm. even for people completely outside that were uninvolved or like, this feels very divisive. Like the government is drawing a line in the sand that say, there's a certain group of our citizens we are just not going to respond to. And I understand their rationale and motivation, but I think it costs a lot more harm than benefit for everyone, even today. Well, it kind of showed the true agenda was not unity. It was something else. You know, if, if the agenda was unity, they would have been out there. And that's what kind of the clear messaging was, okay, well, we know what their agenda isn't, um, which is... You gotta think, like, in an idealistic utopia, surely the government's agenda should be unity. What's the point of running a country? It's like, imagine if you just take it to a microscopic level and you're a manager of a team of seven and your goal is to split them against each other. That makes no sense. Surely the team working together well has got to be the goal. Well, why would that not apply to a country? Just because they didn't vote you in. I mean, you're a manager of a team, they don't vote you in. Fuck is dictatorship. You just get the job, and they're like, they don't even have a say in it. Um, and you, you, you can make that work. And yeah. you still let them feel embraced and accepted and important and part of the part of the, the the unity. Otherwise, you end up pushing them from from what we were talking about before, from from stage three to stage four, where you're now their enemy. You've just declared that you know you're not even going to listen to them. You can see it's, it's one of the biggest mistakes the left made in. Uh, U.S. politics was to degrade the followers of Trump. So, nah, you fucked up there. So you can be against Trump because he's the figurehead. The people following him, 
If you 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 should be trying to understand them. Why not us? Should be the question. You know what's 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 the problem with us that you have that makes you follow a guy like Trump? Instead, they just went like, well, there's more of us than them, so fuck them. It's like, dude, that's half the country you're trying to run. That makes no sense to have the team the team against you and against the other half of the team. That means actually you lose. You move half the pace you can. What's really interesting about this whole situation, and you know, when I think about the basics of human social psychology and how we identify friends and foes and figure out our place in society, you know, this kind of this kind of behavior, the behavior of categorizing a segment of society as different and as unacceptable to your agenda, right? Mm-hmm. That's radicalization. That's how you create a cult, you know? You walk somebody through the whole process. Oh, your life's miserable and unhappy, isn't it? Like, it could be so much better. Oh, they're the enemy. We should, you know, declare war on those people. And now you've got a, you know, jihadist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yet, we even today, even in the largest governments in the world, we haven't learned these basic lessons about how people work. It's kind of shocking. You know, I feel like they should be taught in grade school or something. But uh, we're clearly missing the boat on that. And that's the thing, like, let's say we go down to the smaller level of, you know, partnership or something like that. <laughs> These people, they'll, they'll engage in a behavior and later on they've lost from that behavior and they don't like themselves for doing it when it comes in the cold light of day. We get the impression that there are people out there who really enjoy being divisive and that there's a lot of them. But that's what I say online, you don't see the person like if you were to hang out with them in a pub and they had to be face to face with you and kind of like chill a bit and not like get into a fist fight, you might see a lot more reasonableness than you could possibly expect. You might even change your mind and they might too. And that can happen. And and I think it's one of the few optimisms I have about humanity is I've seen so many examples of when you get people into the right situation, the best comes out. And you're like, oh, there's a lot of people with that in them. You know, and I've worked with some of the people who had the worst. So I've worked with criminal offenders who, with the right circumstances and encouragement and stuff, with no falsity, whatever, become these great people. And you're like, that's who they actually always were. That's one of the reasons they feel guilty about the crimes they commit is they've, you know, the little boy in them before he was tainted. He's still watching all their behavior going, oh, this is horrible, I don't like being this guy. Mm. But feels compelled, unable to stop it. Swept away in like a tidal wave of resentment and conditioning and habits and everything. Now there are some people out there who I'd say fit the category of evil and there doesn't need to be many of them. You know, if you took, uh, I don't know, there's people out there who take great pleasure in divisiveness, who... They, they, that's their actual primary goal. They, they love the sociopaths. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know as, as, as a, as a funny side note, I remember we were talking at one point about, um, uh, psychopathy and about how it can be conditioned. You know, there are actual clinical psychopaths, but then there is also psychopathy that is, can be learned. Yeah. In effect, it can be learned, right? A bit like learned helplessness or, you know, other forms. I'm wondering if learned sociopathy is a thing because in online forums, I see people that just embrace 
being a troll. It becomes their new identity. When they're behind a keyboard, they are an alter ego that is just stirring up shit. And they get something from that, you know? And I find that fascinating because sometimes I'm at the other end of that and I see it happening. You've been at the other end of it in YouTube comments many times. You know, I've seen some of the comments and went, whoa, that's kind of amazing, you know, what people mm -hmm. will write for no reason. You know, what, self-entertainment? Their Netflix was down or something, you know? It's 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 shocking. And, but it's also a fascinating side of human psychology to see people in so much in need of attention that they will desperately fling shit in any direction just to see if someone will respond. I think if you view it like you would view a drug addiction, it all makes sense. They get high off it. Uh, and like all drug addicts, the only reason they have an addiction is because there isn't anything better going on. You know, like, there's nobody with a really great, meaningful life who's also addicted to stuff. Like, addiction's the sort of um, weak substitute for meaning and, and enjoyment of life. And, <clears throat> yeah, online is just, it's, like, we've all got the darkness in us. And there's a kind of brief instant gratification, satisfaction, letting the darkness, like, fling mud kind of thing. Uh, but the idea that these people are thoroughly enjoying their life or anything like that, these trolls are in some sort of position of, you know, deep sense of enjoyment, like that's, that's an illusion. Uh, what's really fascinating me lately was a study I saw that shows almost without doubt that psychopathic people become quite unsatisfied with their social lives as they get older and they have to kind of reap the, the ground of all that trouble, you know, they're just distrusted, like no, nobody who's got their back, you know, they have all these broken relationships and, you know, they're just tired of being hated and, and they also feel like quite distant from people because they manipulate them all the time and they're just, they're not like yearning love and connection in the way we would understand, but they're just like, this sucks. This is a shit way to live. And they get to their position and, you know, quite often they'll go and seek DBT and they'll get therapy that helps them like learn how to manage a relationship. So it's still quite clinical for them, but they're like, oh, this is better. Like getting along with people is way better than what I was doing. And we used to like working with criminals. That used to be like, especially the more psychopathic ones is the selling point was like, look, it's way better to get along, dude, for you personally. You'll like it more. I fucking promise you. No jail. Nobody hating you, not getting fucking fights with hammers all the time. Like, it's a bit less thrilling, but you're just going to be, like, way happier with life in general, you know? And we're, like, we're not trying to con you here. Like, try and see, you know what I mean? Just try getting along, and you'll see. You'll be like, fuck, I should have just done this all along. It's way better. Even if you want to manipulate for your own gain, it's still a better approach. Well, this, this is an interesting thing and, and i'm wondering how how you see this um but my perception is when it comes to the criminal element element of society people that ended up in corrections right for the most part it's not that they wanted to be there it's not that they chose a life of crime purely out of some sense of opportunity you do have you know kleptos and you do have people with violence and anger issues that ended up there just due to lack of self-control but for a lot of people I think it was largely due to lack of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. They're held back in school. They're not accepted by friends. They're sort of shunned by society. And pretty soon the people that they can hang around with and the options that they have for 
proving their life in some way materially aren't legit right they end up making bad decisions and then that's even worse when they come out of corrections because now the only people they know are other criminals and even though they say wow their lives are pretty you know fucked up and i don't really want that for my future but then for a lot of people they don't actually have any options once they exit so they end up sucked back in and I think the few societies and the few times in history where that has been directly addressed, the results seem to be really positive. Oh, I'm just a six round of wolves. Yeah, we'll have to wrap it up soon. Um, well, what I've noticed is, put it this way, I've never worked with a criminal offender where his behavior didn't make sense. Once I understood the whole backstory. And there's an argument you often get where people say, uh, well, you know, I was raised in a tough home and I didn't end up being whatever. It's like, yeah, well, you're not seeing the full picture. You had something he didn't, right? Maybe you had a good friend at school. Maybe you had an encouraging teacher. Maybe you found a hobby that really captivated you. It isn't as simple as like, well, we both got beaten up. How come he's a criminal and I'm not? It's like, well, he had extra stuff or less stuff or something. And it all makes sense. And if you had that, then you would have been different too. Yeah. Like, I think I've once, I met a criminal once in my entire seven-year reign in corrections, a career criminal who had a good upbringing. Once. All the rest, it was horrible upbringings. Like, not even close to good. Like, fetal alcohol syndromes, so like drinking from the start, then abuse and neglect and, like, bad peer group because they lived in the poor area and it was just like... Pfft, how do you get a good person out of that situation? Like, it's not even yeah. possible. But it's the same yeah, with, like, it does, yeah. It, it does happen on occasion, which amazes me. We've got a guy in Brojo, at least one that I can think of, that had that have had just horrible childhoods. I mean, like, chained to a radiator in the basement kind of childhoods. Like, literally, mm -hmm. turned out great. You know, and it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of shocking, but it's a testament to our ability to be resilient as humans, if we're given the opportunity and the ability to create that better life for ourselves, don't have to, you know, go dark side just because you, you were dealt a bad hand at the beginning. A lot of people do, but I think that that is as much a choice as anything. Well, like I said, you know, if you take the guy who had the horrible childhood and you're like, he turned out fine. If you were to feed his entire life into a computer, the computer would go, yeah, but this thing happened and it made a big difference. It'll be, it could be to some small but very significant event. You know, he read a great book. Uh, you know, somebody showed him some love. Or even just his genetics. He just had a kind of defiance in him. Or it was treated so badly that it created like an empathy, like I can't do this to others. Uh, that was an interesting thing. I quite often saw people, it was only like it's light abuse that does more damage than dark, like really mm -hmm. deep abuse, you know. So light abuse kind of, you just get bitter. With really bad abuse, you're like, I can't do this to anyone, it's too horrible. Um, that's just made up off my head. There's no science behind that little theory. Um, but No, I've, I've seen that as well. It's harder to resist because it's not clearly bad. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. And, it's like a, it's you know, like a white lie or half-truth, you know. But, yeah, that sort of lack of understanding that people bring to things, which is, you know, emphasized online, uh, yeah, it just brings out the beast in people. I'll tell you one thing for sure is um, I'm going to keep investing my 
time and attention in some of the online forums that I found that I like. I like the community. I like what it stands for. And I found that it is interesting practicing, like intentionally practicing online leadership, really responding to the needs of legitimate people, calling out BS when there's BS to call out. You know, it's kind of fun. I find it entertaining because I can see all of, you know, their motivations and the people and the situations. And I respond to, like, in all of the forums, there's uh, 10 million users of this product. I respond to about 50% of the support requests. Right. Because I know the answer. I'm like, here's a link. Boom, done. You know, it's that, it's that easy. But that's all it took as well. That's all it took to make someone's day 100 times better. You know, and that's that's well worth it to me. So I'm going to keep experimenting here and see where it goes. Sounds good. Somebody's got to do it. Shit. That's the thing. It only takes a couple of people, but if there's no one, you just yeah, go into the pits right. of hell immediately. There's no counterforce. That's All right, right bro. Good. I know you got to run. We'll catch up soon. Yeah, bro. Catch you up soon, dude. Cheers.